Chapter 11 Belonging to the Formational Community Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. The Culture That Forms Us This book ends where it began, with how culture and community affect who we are. In the first chapter, we explored how secular modernity is a deformational community when it comes to spiritual substance. Modernity has brought many benefits that have greatly increased the quality of our lives. Much of it is consistent with the gospel. And modernity has been greatly influenced by Christianity for the good of all. However, as we have explored, much of the present culture doesn't help us become people of substance, nor do the structures within the culture. They aren't designed to, and living in them has a deformational effect on all of us. In chapter 2, we discussed how abandoning the world isn't our calling. Jesus said he came to make us holy and to send us into the world. Escape isn't an option. In parts two and three, we discuss the marks of substance and many of the practices that help form in us the substance of godliness. But none of these can succeed on their own, and they're not intended to. God's solution for the deformational community is simple. He created his own formational community to exist in the midst of the worldly world. The only way to overcome the deformation that happens in our community, systems, and culture is for us to be immersed in a formational community, system, and culture. Jesus called this the church, and it is the most underrated institution in the universe. We have to clear this up because our misunderstanding of the church leads us to underrate it. Secular modernity, problematic as it is, is not to blame for our lack of substance. The fault lies with our neglect of God's good design in His two formational institutions, the family and the local church. In this chapter, we can only look at the latter, but much of what could be said about the church is also true of the family. And in many formational categories, the family should be first. Yet the world is full of physical and spiritual orphans and people alienated from godly community through all kinds of relational carnage. God has made sure that at least one formational community is open to and includes everyone who belongs to Christ. It is a body, a family, a community, and an institution. It is one of the only physical and concrete gifts we have from God in this age, and embracing it is part of the path to substance. Of course, the church is much more than just a formational institution. However, despite our obsession with asking why, why do I need the local church? It is this formational dynamic that modern secular people tend to undervalue or misunderstand.
Understanding the formational nature of the church answers part of the question. You need it to become a person of spiritual substance. This is what we'll explore in this chapter. A Complete Environment The concrete local church is a formational community specifically designed by Christ to be an environment that forms people of substance. It's the place where the gospel can not only be heard, but also seen, experienced, and absorbed in a comprehensive community in which Christ is Lord. Nothing else in Christian faith or experience can do this. Only the concrete local church can be a comprehensive community in which the structures, assumptions, leadership, and culture can be built on the assumptions and truth of the gospel message. Only this environment can reframe a cultural climate around Christ and create a spiritual habitat in which gospel character can be absorbed in community. The local church is the environmental hub of the wheel of Christian spirituality. It is itself Christ's expression of the culture of heaven in a worldly world. It is where we hear the gospel declared and remember through the Lord's Supper that the central event in history was the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's where we see the miracle of salvation happening in people through baptism. Through weddings, we celebrate the sacredness and wholesomeness of the ordinary roles and rhythms of creation. Through funerals, we celebrate lives lived, acknowledge the reality of death, and remember the gospel hope of resurrection. We express faith in God in worship and prayer. We seek to hear His Word and know His will through reading Scripture, listening to preaching and instruction, and receiving education from one another. We see the first fruits of heaven in the expression of people's spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and the development of spiritual fruit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. In churches, we become members of an intergenerational, multi-ethnic, and even international family who see each other regularly and learn to put up with each other in love, Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. The simplest way to consider this truth about the local church is to try to think about how people change. Most of us grew up in families. How much of what you learned there were you directly taught with words? There were some, but you learned an enormous amount every second from the environment, the structures and culture of your family. You learned how the rooms were laid out, when it was time for dinner, the tone of voice your father used in the morning, where you would sit around a table, and whether the dog was allowed inside the house. There were 10,000 things from my childhood home that I absorbed but cannot name. I was not explicitly taught many of them, but I learned them nonetheless. That's how people develop. They become like the people around them. They absorb the culture of the environment in which they find themselves. It would be great if every child could absorb the gospel in a Christian home. But the fuller vision of this is the local church. Influence and Time It's been said that we become like the people we eat with. That is, we don't absorb culture and influence equally in every context. We absorb more in some environments than others. Sharing a meal matters more than others because it is a more intimate, family-like form of community. This means that Jesus' formational community doesn't have to take up your whole life. It doesn't have to be a commune, as long as we absorb his influence at a rate strong enough to make us substantive disciples and overcome the influence of worldliness. 
People absorb culture more substantively if they experience the environment with immersion and intimacy. Time in the culture is less important than how deeply you are in it, what the bond is based on, and how close your relationships are in that community. For example, will eating with five people you love while talking about something you're passionate about for 40 minutes impact you more or less than waiting in an office for four hours with 50 other people you don't know? If volume equals impact, the impact equations for these two scenarios would be being with friends, 5 people times 40 minutes equals 200 impact points. Waiting in the office, 50 people times 240 minutes equals 12,000 impact points. Now, according to this math, the office visit is 60 times more impactful. But I think we all know that's hogwash. How much time is not what matters. There does have to be significant time for immersion and intimacy, but it's not the volume of time that primarily makes the difference. What makes even more of a difference is who you are in community with, what the community is about, and how the community is interacting with each other about its passion. The local church is Christ's specially designed formational community, crafted for immersion, intimacy, and bonding in a shared passion, truth, and identity. The church is gathered together around Christ, His gospel, and everything that relates to them. It is an immersive community of consistent relationships where people dive into significant, meaningful actions together. We sing together, we eat together, we pray together, we encourage, correct, and exhort each other. We baptize each other and eat the Lord's Supper together. We watch each other grow up and grow old, and we spend time in meaningful fellowship with each other. Sometimes we even have to confront and discipline one another. Every Christian needs the local church both to be and to become a substantive disciple. We need a place where people can experience the culture of King Jesus, a place where we can simultaneously hear the gospel preached and see it lived. We need a place where our connection with God frames our connections with others, where we can grow in our understanding of the gospel and knowledge of the Bible, where we are supported in embracing the ordinary rhythms and responsibilities of work and family. We need a place that helps us escape diversions and embrace discipline by embracing Christ and saying goodbye to worldliness. We all desperately need the local church for our spiritual formation. And that's exactly how Jesus designed it to be. Four Critical Implications Four implications of these truths are important for us to consider. First, we must be interested in and intimately connected to do local church. You don't have to be at the local church every minute. The Bible doesn't specify how many hours per day one should be at a church, how many times per week or month, or what one should be doing there. It assumes that you will worship, hear teaching, have real relationship with other believers, pray, serve others, use your spiritual gifts, and give. You have a lot of freedom in how exactly to live that out. At High Points, we encourage people to come to worship every Sunday, be in a small group, and then do whatever else they need for growth or whatever they can do to help other people receive what they need. But whatever we choose, we should ask ourselves, is it intimate? Am I immersed? Am I connecting over shared identity and passion for the glory of Jesus and the truth of the gospel? 
Is Christ's formation of spiritual substance in me outstripping what I'm absorbing in the deformational environment of the world? Second, we must not undermine the integrity of the gospel environment in the local church for the sake of relevance to the secular culture. Bringing the gospel of the city of God to bear relevantly on the city of man is part of our mission to make disciples. Bringing the truth and power of the gospel to bear on the real questions and experiences of the people around us is called contextualization, and it's one of High Point's core values. It can be very difficult to be relevant to the worldly-minded person while still placing a strong emphasis on the gospel, which they don't have a taste for yet. These two things will always be in tension with each other. Yet we shouldn't confuse religious language and protective culture with pursuing gospel substance. As residents of the city of man, seeking Christ means we must constantly consider how Christ confronts, embraces, rejects, and redeems the realities of our secular city. That is true relevance. And while we have these conversations about Christ in the world, we will be relating to the world from a completely different set of assumptions, namely the mind of Christ. Our assumptions about the work and kingdom of King Jesus may feel completely irrelevant or even combative to our neighbors who have not believed the gospel. It will leave us with a difficult question. Is it possible to embody and proclaim the good strangeness of Christianity while also showing people that we're not as unlike them as they think? However we try to negotiate our responsibility to meet our secular neighbors where they are, it can't be at the cost of the richness and substance of the gospel community in our local church. Displaying the truth, grace, and life-changing power of the gospel in the local church is our first priority. Only by doing so, as a formational community, can we seek to bring it to bear wisely on the questions, interests, and experiences of our non-believing neighbors. Third, we must visionally and courageously guard the spiritual health of our church. Once we see that the church is not just a place of gospel declaration, but also of gospel absorption, we have to ask ourselves, what are people absorbing here? Attending to the real spiritual health of individuals and of the whole community is hard work. It takes courage and nerve. Years ago, when I was studying to be a pastor, I worked as a security guard with a deeply Christian man who was doing a Ph.D. in Old Testament at my seminary. One night at about 2 a.m., I asked him if he had ever been or considered being a pastor. His whole demeanor changed. He said, I was a pastor. That's why I'm here now doing a Ph.D., so I'll never have to be one again. Both sensing his pain and brimming with curiosity, I asked, Why do you say that? I'd already done plenty of case studies on why pastors quit. Most get burned out or don't have the temperament for it. Sometimes people in the church attack the pastor's wife or children, or the church is so dysfunctional when the pastor gets there that he can't turn it around. I was becoming quite the little expert on pastoral case studies. But this man didn't say any of those things. He just said, I quit when I realize that no one will fight for the church. Good people won't actually stand up to the bullies, deal with abuse, or face opposition. Church people are all cowards. You, as pastor, can go ahead and stand up for her, but no one will stand up with you. I know that sounds bitter. It sounded bitter to me that night, and I think it was. 
But I can't tell you how many times I've seen that in a church or heard it from someone about their experience in a church or as a pastor. It shows up in case after case, and I've seen it firsthand. The average churchgoer is terrified of conflict and unwilling to fight for the spiritual health of the church. The vast majority of even the most devout Christians, when they see real spiritual dysfunction and decay in their church, just leave. They don't fight. That's wrong. Substantive Christians know that the environment of the church, its collective spiritual health, is what the people, especially kids of the church, will absorb whether they are seekers or saints. When we realize that the atmosphere of the church is seeping into the hearts of everyone present, none of us can be complacent about the church's health, the beauty of its love, or its tenacity in the truth. So many Christians want to change the world into something great, and in pursuit of that dream, write off their local church as a lost cause. Jesus seemed to teach that any Christian who wants to change the world should start with their church and their neighbor. If the spiritual substance, health, and beauty of our church cannot shine with the radiance of a city on a hill, we have no change worth offering the world. Fourth, we must embrace and support the authority that Jesus has instituted within his church. We live in a society that is deeply distrustful of authority. If power corrupts, then so must authority. And if that authority assumes the right of spiritual judgment and discipline, our worldly absorptions shriek with terror. Yet this is precisely what God designed, and He did so for the beauty, health, and purity of His formational counter-community. He has set up spiritual authority through elders and demanded that that authority bring discipline into the church when necessary for its health. It is not the world that is to display His glory, carry the culture of heaven, or create a reputation for His name among men and women. The Bible says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9-13. through 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meeting the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are they not to judge those inside? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. What might be most surprising in this paragraph is that Paul tells them not to judge people who are really terribly wicked. As examples, he lists people who are sexually immoral, are obviously greedy, swindle and cheat others, and worship false gods. These people stink. All good people in the world, regardless of their religious or irreligious convictions, would judge and separate from them. And yet he's telling Christians not to separate from them. It's God's job to judge those outside the church, not ours. But Paul also says that we can't turn a blind eye when people claim to be Christians and openly act like they aren't. Just like we aren't supposed to turn a blind eye to false teaching, we aren't supposed to turn a blind eye to openly false living. The first step is always kind and private correction. But if a professing believer will not be corrected after multiple attempts at gracious correction, 
Paul teaches that we must expel the wicked person. Not only so their wickedness doesn't infect the whole church, but also so the disciplined person can feel himself outside the promise of salvation and be drawn to repentance and salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6-8. through 8. And then be joyfully reunited with the church. It is our God-given responsibility to uphold the integrity of the message and environment of the gospel in the local church. That responsibility is entrusted to the whole congregation, but is normally led by the pastors and elders who have become its leaders. This means that if we understand how Jesus has set up the local church, we should expect and encourage the elders to lead in all matters of spiritual shepherding, including church discipline, even if they have to confront and correct us. Often, if elders are active in teaching, encouraging, and exhorting and correcting Christ's flock, there will be very few cases of church discipline. Most people will either be gently corrected before things go too far, or they will remove themselves knowing the integrity and consistency of the elders. Concerning the elders, a wise flock takes the office, and work of elders very seriously and encourages the best and most godly men in the congregation to present themselves for the work. It selects them very carefully, not elevating anyone who isn't qualified by the biblical standards laid out in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. Finally, it prays for them constantly, knowing the importance and difficulty of their work. It's hard work to fight for the church with tenderness, to fight with ferocity, while loving people compassionately. Honor them for what they do. Embracing Formational Community when we see the church for what it is, as Christ's formational counter-community, it will change how we participate and support the local church. With our minds framed by this reality, we will know that every Christian should be an immersed and intimate member of the local church. We should know that what can feel like difficult intimacies, corporate singing, asking people for prayer, and so on, are essential to our transformation. We will want our church's relevance to be achieved through substantively and explicitly displaying the truth, grace, and life-changing power of Christ. We will be willing to stand up and fight for the church and her health, either as leaders in the church or when leaders need our support, assuming they aren't the problem. We will make the spiritual health and godliness of our local church a top priority. We won't settle for it being a nice religious organization. We will strive to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of us. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. We will embrace church authority and church discipline as a necessary function of church health. And finally, we will pray for and be careful in selecting people for church authority. There is only one way to help a person who's been deformed by the wrong kind of community, and that is for him or her to be immersed in the right kind of community. Jesus has created the church to be this community for us and for others through us. Such a community must have a certain structure, ethos, and environment. The only such community in the world that has this is the gospel-centered local church. It is the place where godliness is found, shared, and displayed in its most concentrated beauty. 
Such churches are the best incubators for substantive believers, with the mind of Christ living in step with the Spirit as they increasingly obey everything Jesus commanded. Matthew 28, verse 20. They will become increasingly intergenerational, multi-ethnic, and international. As they expand into their purpose, they expand their capacity for love in the hard places. The church is the heavenly glory of the supernatural Christ, and his salvation made seemingly ordinary. Embrace it, and substance, wisdom, and blessing will embrace you. Conclusion Doing the Impossible As we come to the end of this study together, you may have a nagging question still in your mind. Is the vision of life laid out in this book actually possible for us, for you? Here's what I know. It is definitely impossible if we are worldly people, shallow, vaporous, fragile, and looking to everything and everyone but Christ. But in Christ, God said, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind, and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from their past sins. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3-9, through 9, NIV 1984. Everything we need for life and godliness has been given as a gift to us in Christ because of God's own gloriousness and goodness. This should change our perspective on the impossible. If Jesus was generous enough to give us an impossible forgiveness, why should he not also give us everything we need to be formed in the godliness for which he created us? But if we see this, we will also take seriously that he says we must make every effort to receive these gifts and grow and develop in their transforming power. Receiving substance is a sweaty business. Effortful receiving is the very essence of pursuing spiritual substance. It is what it means to live out saving faith in real life. This is the purpose for which Christ forgave us and a central part of his cosmic plan for the redemption of all things. It is the single great calling of your life because it is the single great purpose of your creation and redemption. It is the road to your greatest purpose and happiness. It is the means by which God can be seen as glorious and good for our joy and the good of all creation. If this sounds overwhelming to you, my final exhortation to you is to meditate on the nature and promises of the one who has invited you to it. If you are in Christ, the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God is alive in you. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. In the words of the Apostle Paul, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power 
is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. The people of God have always fixed their hope not on their own ability, but on our Father's perfect strength and immeasurable compassion. In Christ, you are stronger than you've ever imagined, and you lack nothing, absolutely nothing. The simple goal of this book is to help burn away the fog of worldliness with its confusions and move us deeper into a seriousness about discipleship that will produce glorious spiritual substance in our lives. Growing in spiritual substance will make us deeper, more resilient and stronger, as well as unshakable in hope and peace. It will help us pursue the virtues that can, quote, keep us from being ineffective and unproductive in our knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. End quote. 2 Peter 1 verse 8. In short, its goal is to help those of us who have received Christ to go on in becoming like him in real spiritual substance, no matter how worldly this world becomes. As another pastor said before me, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Let us strive together in grace to be all that God has made us to be. And let's do it for the unspeakable great joy set before us. Hebrews 12, chapter 2.